You can have all the greatest ideas in the world, right? But if your customer doesn't have that same vision or doesn't understand what uh, what you're trying to do, um, they'll push back, right? And so you've got to be really good at communicating that vision, uh, and you've got to be really good at getting buy-in for that vision, and you've got to be really good at translating the inputs from your customers um, into the things that you're designing out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara, and I'm the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Outmatch and your host for the podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. So during each podcast, we highlight someone who's transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. Today's guest is Mike Wilczek, Senior VP of Corporate Development at iSIMS. One of my interests in talking to Mike is to get a deeper understanding of what drives growth at a company like iSIMS, and really to understand in greater detail how iSIMS has managed their growth. And Mike does not disappoint. During our conversation, Mike gives us some great insight into how iSIMS defines successful employees, what the iSIMS values are, and how those values are used to select and evaluate the team. He gives us some must-watch trends in the HR tech market, and he talks about the role of mentors in his career and the importance he believes mentors have on those starting their career journey. Mike goes into some great detail on all those things and other topics. Plus, while recording this, he was missing the ISIM's Thanksgiving potluck party, so I feel quite honored that he chose our podcast, uh, essentially chose our podcast over lunch. Uh, so without further delay, here's the Talent Playbook podcast with Mike Wilczek of ISIM's. Mike, thanks for joining the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so uh, thanks again for, for joining me. Yeah, Jason, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Cool. Uh, okay, so before we, we get started in too many detailed questions, what I'd like to do is have you just describe iSIMS for our listeners. Um, and after you talk a little bit about iSIMS and, and the company, tell us a little bit about your job and just how long you've been doing that job. Yeah, sure. So um, iSIMS is a software company. We focus specifically on providing recruiting software. Um, the company's been in business now for uh, almost 20 years. And throughout that time frame has been consistently focused on providing software for recruiting. So um, kind of set our mission out early and, and have stuck to it for uh, two decades now. And I've been with the company for just over four years. Uh, my focus at the company is what we call strategy and corporate development. So um, if you kind of look at the way companies run, you have folks that are focused on the day-to-day of building a product, what we're pushing out in our next release. You have folks that are uh, focused on what we're selling. Um, and that's very much a near-term focus. Mm-hmm. My focus is looking out over the next um, one-year horizon. So really looking you know, three to five years out, understanding how the industry is evolving, understanding how our business is evolving, um, and identifying the things that we need to put in place in the business in order to keep perpetuating our, our growth rate, our, our market share capture, and our profitability. So um, that's really what my role is centered on. And so how did you get started in that role? Did you get started there from a sales perspective and even started in your career, right? So that's a pretty conceptual job that you have. So how how does one, you know, get into that? Yeah, I wish I, uh, I mean, honestly, when I was going through school, I had no idea that this was actually a career path. (laughs) Um, So 
my goal in life was to be an architect. Mm. And uh, when you think about architecture and all the things that go into that, it actually translates really well to the role that I'm in here. So with an architect, right, uh, that, that whole mindset is about how do you take something that exists today and transform it into something that you can visualize um, it looking like in its end state. And um, so there's sort of that whole um, strategic piece of it, right? How do, I, how do I transform what I'm doing today into something that's new uh, for the future? And then uh, there are all of the aspects around having to be able to design that so that you can give those plans off to someone else to actually go build it. Mm. Um, and then project manage the, the building of that project. So um, it turns out like, you know, all of those are the same kinds of things that I do in my role day to day here. It's, you know, what do we want to uh, turn this business into in the next three to five years? What are the things that we need to um, design out? and give to our product teams, to our sales teams, to our marketing teams, um, and then project managing the implementation of all of these new initiatives that we're pursuing. So it actually turned out to be a great um, transition. Um, I didn't set out to be in this role, right? I, I started off um, looking to be an architect, ended up going into uh, engineering as a college major, realized that I was a terrible engineer. Um, I just didn't have the discipline to sit there and, and do that kind of math day in and day out. So um, graduated with a business degree, um, started my career at AT&T and really had the the luck to land with a group of folks um, and at a company that just um, really invested behind its folks. Um, and so I got the opportunity to work on projects there uh, that were more strategic in thinking about where AT&T goes in the future um, and how they operationalize it. My big break, I guess, so to speak, came yeah. when I took what I had learned at AT&T and went to uh, a PE-backed company. Um, that was headquartered in New Jersey. There were about 25 million in sales and all of the things that I had learned at AT&T, all of the things that I was good at because I had sort of this architectural mindset um, turned out to be completely relevant to a $25 million company that was trying to figure out how to become a $200 million company. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I stepped into that company, I stepped in as a, a VP of business development focused on partnerships. Um, but there was a founding CEO and there was a leadership team that was um, really receptive to me taking on more responsibility. They started bringing me into board discussions. Um, and uh, that's really where I cut my teeth. And that's where I got to apply all of the things that I had learned in the first you know, seven, eight years of my career yeah. um, and really start applying it toward helping to grow a, a, a business from kind of 25 million to about 250 million when we exited. Yeah. It sounds like um, a, a great opportunity also for if you if i think about architecture and one of the things that intrigues me about architecture is just the 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 thinking and the thought experiment right when you talk about getting pulled into board meetings um there's a lot of that that's occurring right there's a lot of well, what what does the market look like here and what are your thoughts and where's the data that might support that and let's walk through a thought experiment about that is that sort of your experience working with working with the board at that level Completely, right? So, so, so much of it is consultative and um, collaborative, right? Uh, when you think about that architect kind of persona, um, you can have all the greatest ideas in the world, right? But if your customer doesn't have that same vision um, or doesn't understand what, uh, what you're trying to do, um, they'll push back, right? And so you've got to be really good at communicating that vision uh, and you've got to be really good at getting buy-in for that vision and you've got to be really good at translating the inputs from your customers um, into the things that you're designing out. So um, that's that's you know very much the board meeting right. Here are the things that we're facing. What are the issues that we're uh, that we're seeing, and what are the alternatives that we can pursue, and then how do we go about and do it? So um, those board meetings are very much like client consultation kind of meetings. Yeah, yeah. 
that's a neat way to think about that. So um, let's talk just briefly about, you know, a day in the life of you at work. Uh, what does that look like, right? You've got a, you've got a pretty big purview. Think about what it's going to be like in five years and figure out how to bring that, <laughs> make that happen now. Um, what does a day in the life look like for you at ISIMS? So I think the thing that I absolutely love about this is that there is no typical day in the life. Mm-hmm. Um, my function is more uh, initiative-based, right? So I don't have uh, that typical kind of uh, rigorous schedule. So uh, my day can consist of uh, talking with bankers about what they're seeing in the industry, where they're making investments in the industry, companies that they think are um, potential acquisition targets for us, and really just trying to understand from their perspective where they see um, the next bets that they and their clients are placing. Um, So that's a a part of my role. Mm -hmm. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking with industry analysts and our ecosystem to understand how they're seeing the space and to understand what the new opportunities are in the market and where the potential risks are to our business. Mm -hmm. Um, I also spent a lot of time with our internal teams uh, understanding and translating what we're seeing from the outside market and from within our business, all the metrics and trend lines over time, um, and really understand like how that's going to impact our business and then looking at how all of that information uh, influences where we make investments in our business, what new products we build, what new markets we go into, um, how we think about uh, top line growth, how we think about profitability and cash flow and those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. the short answer is there is no typical day. Every day is, is somewhat different, but there's probably four or five key themes that, uh, that I'll probably go through in every single day. Yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's, it's interesting to hear about what, what may sound unstructured, um, actually probably has some structure to it, but I, I, I do like the idea that everything is designed to understand what the, what the future might look like and how do we, how do we bring that back down to the ground? So thanks for, thanks for explaining that. Um, you know, the, the point of this podcast really talk about, um, business or industry transformation and, and you and I, as we have gotten to know each other and talked really, have talked a lot about growth and have talked about growth at ISIMS and, and certainly this, the intention of this podcast is not to be an ISIMS commercial, but really to talk about what are the, what are the things you've seen from a growth perspective at ISIMS? Why has ISIMS been able to grow? So, so talk, if you can just set the stage for our audience a little bit about growth at ISIMS and then let's dig in about how and why that growth has happened because it's been, it's been very exciting. I know that. And, and uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about that. So go through like sort of set the stage for that growth story for us. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I mean, the reality is we're a 20 year overnight success story. (laughs) I think uh, we kind of were under the radar for a long period of time. Um, This is a a company that got started uh, with a piece of technology that was created in a staffing firm. And our founder and CEO, uh, Colin Day, uh, was working there as a recruiter and uh, understood that the tools that that company had built for its own internal recruiting practices um, were tools that other companies could benefit from buying. And so uh, having an entrepreneurial um, spirit, he approached the owner of the staffing firm and uh, convinced him to become a a business partner and take the software they had created for internal use and create a a standalone company that would focus on selling recruiting software. And that's how ISIM was born. Um, I think when you think about the things that have been um, really core to our success, I I probably boil it down into, you know, three or four things that have just been impactful over the last 20 years. 
Um, first and foremost was we, we had this mindset early on that we can't do everything for everyone and be really good at it. And so this idea of focus, prioritizing the things that you focus on, um, really became important to us. And it helped us to um, define how we want to build our products. Um, so that idea of focus, don't do everything for, you know, can't do everything for everyone, mm-hmm. really boiled down to be a SaaS company. Build one product, one set of code, one version, all customers. Don't customize for any customer. If there's something that um, we think uh, should be created, we should build it for the benefit of everyone. Um, so from day one, we emerged as a, as a subscription software company hosted in the cloud. We were a SaaS company uh, from origination mm-hmm. um, by design. I think that's really helped us um, because it's enabled us to put all of our investment into building recruiting products um, rather than having to build multiple products for different customers that do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that innovation has kept us ahead of the market. So um, we feel like we're the most thoughtful uh, recruiting software product in the market um, because we can invest more money behind recruiting um, than any other company in this space. Um, that focus actually also helped us from a sales and marketing standpoint too. So you can't um, sell every product to every uh, company. Uh, you really have to get good at understanding what your product um, fulfills. And finding, the, finding the companies that value that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to prioritize and, and focus our resources on recruiting software, on a, um, on a commercial market segment, enabled us to maximize our marketing spend, our brand spend, and our sales efforts on a very specific market. Mm-hmm. So um, the result of all of that is that we've emerged as the category leader. Um, when you look at ISIMS, we are the, the largest um, best of breed provider in the market. Um, we are uh, second overall behind Taleo, but in some markets, we're actually ahead of Taleo now. And when you look at ISIMS relative to the other standalone providers, we're probably four or five times bigger than our next largest competitor. So that, that idea of focus, that idea of um, addressing a market that is incredibly innovative um, and that deserves a best in breed provider has really benefited us really well. Yeah. And, and so how do you, um, it, how do you communicate that focus to the, employee base you know that that i don't know if that has changed over the years as you've added more employees but like you know how how do you how do you get your employees to sign up for that that level of focus that's a great question so um we get this question a lot actually from new hires so one of the things that we do is a new hire um, orientation and a new hire um, breakfast with the executives and someone always asks like what is the uh, what is it that I should understand in my first 90 days mm-hmm. the thing I always tell them about is sort of the story that I uh, that I relate um, that I learned through my son so my, my kids play soccer and I played soccer growing up and mm-hmm. uh, at some point my son had an opportunity to join a uh, an academy team a, a team that was um, pr- more professionally run than dad coaching the team um, None of the kids seem to be spectacular, but they all seem to work together extremely well uh, and achieve a lot together. Mm-hmm. And so sort of flipping from being a dad coaching you know, a team to sitting on the sidelines and observing, what I realized is that they do you know, some things really well. Um, the first thing that they do is they, um, they set a, uh, a standardized vision of what it is that they're trying to achieve. So in soccer, you can play multiple systems. Mm-hmm. They pick a system, right? Um, and they make sure that every but he understands how that team functions. This is the system that is being played, and um, these are the things that we're trying to achieve as a team. 
Um, and so they set that clear vision and they make sure that everybody understands the vision that the team is trying to achieve and how that team functions. The second thing that they do is they take that system and they break it down into what each position on the field is responsible for performing. Um, and uh, and they teach the kids, right? In this situation, in this position, this is what your responsibility is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they enforce that everybody has a role on the team. Everybody has a responsibility to the team and the team works better when it functions together rather than as individuals. And then the third thing that they do is that they make every player uh, on the team feel as though they and their role is the most important on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I look at iSIMS and what's really been uh, our ability to get everybody into this company as we've scaled, we're about 800 employees now, um, and we're adding hundreds of employees every year. It really boils down to those three things. We put so much effort into making sure that we uh, define a clear vision uh, of what we want to achieve and how we're going to get there. We make sure that we take that vision um, and communicate it to employees uh, regularly and often through different channels. We then um, work with managers to make sure that they're converting our vision and our objectives into uh, roles within their team so that everybody understands how uh, they contribute to achieving the vision. Um, And then we invest so much in building a a great culture where people want to work here. People, um, you know, uh, invite their friends to come work here. Uh, family members in some cases, right? So it's really those three things. Set a great vision, make sure everybody understands it, break that down into individual roles so that everybody knows how they contribute to the team and just make everybody feel as though they're the most important thing to our success. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you miss coaching soccer? <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, boy, you want to talk about a humbling experience trying to get a nine-year-old to listen. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I know I know what you're saying because I I have had kids that age and I'm sure people will will listen will identify with that with that too. Um, hey, can we dig in on culture real quick? So, um, you know, invest in a great culture is I think an easy thing to say and a challenging thing to do. So, let's talk a little bit about culture. How do you build a great culture and what what investments do you have to make? And then how do you see that develop and blossom? You know, where do you where does that where, where are the tangible pieces of that effort? I think that's a great question. I mean, there, there, there's a book um, that I know Colin shared with all of us at one point called Disrupted. Mm. Uh, someone who, uh, someone probably, you know, a lot like me, right? Sort of middle-aged uh, guy who had a career in a different industry who came into a, a, a SaaS company and uh, sort of the shock of going from one industry to another industry, but also, you know, sort of the a culture shock of, you know, what, employees were um, doing within that company and, and valued within that company. Um, I think, you know, sort of the headline of that book was I'm working in a kindergarten, right? Like <laughs> there was that one moment where we sat down and said, you know what, we're looking around and everything's painted in primary colors and everybody's bouncing on little, you know, ergonomic balls. <laughs> and we've got a, a Zen um, garden where people can rake, you know, and uh, do all those kind of things. And we realized like that is, it isn't culture. Um, you know, it's kind of cool right. to walk around and I guess, that kind of stuff, but that's not really what people value. Um, so we made a really big effort to say, look, there, you know, there are some things that we think are just absolutely important that everybody should be um, understanding and, and working toward. Um, one is we really prioritize um, on the type of people that we bring into the company. Uh, I think for us, we recognize that if you build a company of A players, you attract other people that want to be an A player. And so you've got to have that culture of achievement and that culture of um, excellence. 
um, because that helps you um, focus on the folks that believe in that, um, but also attract other folks that have that same mindset. Um, so it starts with hiring, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that you're bringing the right kind of folks into the company. Um, I think for us, we also pride ourselves on the fact that we benchmark ourselves around the types of benefits um, that we offer to our employees. And so uh, we very much focus on making sure that uh, we're covering our employees healthcare um, costs that we are providing um, maternity and paternity leave and um, and all the things that we think people should just have um, have in place so that they don't have to worry about it. Um, we think that's a reflection of our commitment to the employees. Yeah. Um, I think the, the other piece is that we um, do a lot in terms of celebrating achievement and recognition. Um, at the end of the day, you know, people really want to be recognized uh, for the level of effort that they're putting in. And so a lot of our effort is around, you know, how do we um, identify the, the, the teams and the individuals that are making extraordinary contributions to the company, celebrate them, hold them up as an example, um, and then uh, figure out how we uh, identify the next generation of folks. So I think one of the benefits of growth is that we've been able to create great career paths for people that have come into the company uh, at entry levels and have been able to grow up with us. So that combination, I think, is is uh, fantastic, and it's done well by us in terms of attracting folks to ISIMS. Thanks. Yeah. So um, let's talk about prioritizing employees, building a culture of excellence, finding the right people and and, and bringing them into the company. So uh, two two questions there. So I'll ask you a double barrel question and you can decide which one you want to answer first. Um, how do you define a successful employee at ISIMS? And then uh, how what specifically do you do to find those those people? That's a great question. Um, I guess I'd fall back to what we define as our core values. Um, so we're, we're pretty explicit in saying, look, you know, everybody you know, is valuable, um, but there are certain attributes that we think are really important if you're going to um, be at ISINs because we want people that reflect that. Um, so uh, and we call those our core values. Um, and there are seven of them. And, and every now and then we, we debate them and, and determine whether or not we should change them or change the meaning of them. And we always come back to, you know, these things have been universal. Um, when we set them down you know, a decade ago, uh, they really haven't changed much since then. Um, but, and those core values are things that everybody um, would probably understand, right? So you have to have a passion. Um, you have to have drive. Um, you have to be adaptable because this is a rapidly changing business. Um, we have this concept of Kaizen, right? That, um, the most important thing isn't necessarily to get it hundred percent, right? It's mm -hmm. to start down the path and then understand how you need to evolve over time and change over time and continuously get better, um, in order to, to get to the, uh, end result that you're trying to mm -hmm. get to, um, customer experience, uh, empathy. So, um, so we don't just put those on the wall. We actually incorporate those values into everything that we do as a company. So when we go through onboarding, we train people on what those values are and what those values mean and how they exemplify those values. When we put out communications about things like, uh, I don't know, changing uh, office space, mm -hmm. right? Um, we ask folks to rely on their sense of adaptability because you know things aren't gonna be 100% right when they move into the new office. Mm -hmm. um, when we do employee evaluations, uh, a big part of the employee evaluation is actually around those seven core competencies. 
And so it's not just words on the wall. It's actually things that we've um, put into every part of our uh, thinking uh, and interaction with employees is to make sure that we're constantly reflecting on those core values. So, and I'll tell you, okay. I mean, you know, maybe taking that a step further, I mean, one of the things that I think we've been um, phenomenal about and, and people sometimes have a hard time understanding is um, we've had employees that have just been, you know, great achievers, but they didn't reflect the core values. And so when we hire, we actually hire for core values more than we hire for skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a, a great uh, individual contributor, um, but your career path at the company is limited if you don't exemplify those core values. Yeah, that, I think that's really important to um, to communicate to people too, right? So those those core values are the highest order of 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 behavior, and then they're really the things that that define. And, and you're you're happy to celebrate achievement, but celebrating achievement is not just about sales quota, right? Celebrating achievement could, could actually be how you align with the values and, and what you're able to accomplish with the values. That's right. Yeah. So you mentioned employee evaluations. Um, I think that's a, that's a little inside baseball, HR hot topic kind of thing. Some people love to do evaluations. Some people hate to do evaluations. There are lots of technology out there to facilitate evaluations. So talk a little bit about the, the evaluation process at ISIMS. You know, do you, do you use a specific piece of technology? Do they happen at a certain period of time? Like what, what does that evaluation process look like? Yeah, happy to talk about it. So um, we set goals at the beginning of every year, and those goals are aligned to what our vision is and our objectives um, for the company. Um, and we cascade those objectives down you know, by level, by level, by level, so that it gets down to the individual contributor, um, and they know what they're responsible for. Um, and then, so that forms um, how we a portion of how we evaluate. Um, we also evaluate not just on performance against those goals, but against your fulfillment of the core values. And so that's the uh, a second big piece mm-hmm. of, uh, of the conversation between the manager and the, the individual. We also get input from uh, sort of that 360 or 180 kind of um, viewpoint. So mm-hmm. we'll ask your peers, your, your directs um, to evaluate as well. Um, because those are the folks that actually see whether or not you exemplify those core values. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say whether you hit your sales goal, right? It's another right. thing to say whether you're not you're empathetic. Um, and so, and then so we gather that, um, and then what we do is we sit down with folks um, twice a year formally uh, to walk through uh, performance against those different requirements um, and have an open conversation. And then actually, what we do that I absolutely love is that. Um, as a leadership team, we get together and we invite each manager to present a slide on their employee, uh, on the person that's on their team. Mm-hmm. Talk about the things that they've achieved. Talk about the things that they can do better. Um, talk about how uh, they exemplify those core values and whether or not there's someone that we should be thinking about um, for bigger roles within the company. So. Um, that really gives everybody uh, an opportunity to stand up and, and talk about the success of their teams uh, and to highlight folks that we think are the next generation of leaders in the company. It gives us an opportunity to really um, understand who we can tap as we continue mm-hmm. to grow and start um, building out new teams or uh, tackling new initiatives. How, how long have you done that? Is that something that's come out of out of growth and more empo- employees, or has that been something you did have done forever? 
We've done it for the four four plus years that I've been here. Um, the first year that we that I was here that we did it, it was probably a, a day long uh, process because we had a hundred employees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With eight hundred employees, it's probably a week long process now. <laughs> right. right. Um, but honestly, I mean, there's so much value that we all get out of it that uh, I think we're all in favor of just continuing to dedicate the time to it. I don't know that we can see all that to two thousand employees, um, but we're all still willing to make that commitment at this size. Yeah, I think that speaks a lot about the values, right? The passion and the drive to to continue to grow the business. If if the management team is willing to spend a week looking at every single employee, that's really, I mean, that's that's tremendously empathetic. That you know, I mean, I think that that illustrates a lot of those values. So, um, very cool, very cool conversation to have there. So, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, so. Of all these things, you, know, you talk about um, turn a little bit looking out into the future, and you've got all these very specific um, tasks for employees and goals, and it's just it's a lot. So, help us understand a little bit about the trends that you see in the in the market. What are the things that you look at really purely in in your role and say, boy, these these trends are are picking up speed. These are the things where where people in human capital should be focused. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are a lot of buzzwords and things like that that get talked about, particularly if you go to HR tech, right? Every year there seems to be another um, theme that emerges there. I think for me, the the biggest trend uh, for companies that are doing hiring is that I think we're moving from what used to be more of a, um, I don't want to use the word credentials, but um, more academic type um, hiring process mm-hmm. to more of a skills-based hiring process. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, where you went to school and the, the experience that you had gathered um, along the way used to carry a ton of weight, right? I only want to see people that are graduating from this school with a 3.0 GPA and you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the scarcity of resources, I think um, this whole movement toward more of a gig economy or freelancing or contingent workforce, and all of that is making people rethink the way that they uh, hire people. Um, you don't need to um, go to Harvard, you know, uh, in order to be a good developer, right? People can develop those skills um, after school, um, in some cases without school. Mm-hmm. So I think the big thing that I think companies are starting to recognize and I think that companies are going to start um, leveraging more of is how do they find people that either have the skills or have the potential to gather those skills and, and being able to assess those capabilities, not by formalized education, um, but in other ways. And so I think that's something that uh, is probably a really big trend. I think a lot of the, the tool sets, I think a lot of the um, – talent pools and things like that are going to be affected by this idea that um, the person that you hire may not be uh, somebody that's, you know, spent seven years in SaaS, you know, working as an inside sales representative at a pharmaceutical SaaS. You know, it just, you know, it's more about how do you find really smart folks that have the capacity to do it rather than uh, finding folks that have done it and demonstrated doing it for so many years mm-hmm. that you're trying to plug into that role. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, that's probably a really big trend. Um, I'm fascinated by a lot of the companies that are um, building technologies around uh, enabling people to gather skill sets in a less um, formalized way 
I'm fascinated about tools that enable um, companies to assess those kinds of skill sets um, and put people into talent pools based on their ability to demonstrate a skill set rather than an, an academic credential. Um, I'm fascinated, you know, and maybe it's because I wanted to be an architect and somehow landed in this kind of role. <laughs> I'm probably the use case for, uh, right. companies, uh, right. I just sort of, you know, happened to fall into something that leveraged my skills, but not necessarily my formal education. So, um, I think that's a big trend. Um, I think this whole thing around the gig economy and contingent workforce is, um, is going to continue to grow. Uh, I think more and more people are, um, not working full time. Um, for lots of different reasons. Um, but I think that that's something that companies are really going to have to get their head around is how do, how do I not only hire, but continuously rehire, um, and how do I continuously rehire, um, potentially for, you know, multiple different types of projects that my company needs to perform. So I think that's a big challenge. Uh, and I think that's going to have to, uh, require companies to change the way that they recruit, um, and assess candidates through the workflow. Um, I think this whole thing around, you know, maybe more specific to, to our business, you know, uh, data um, and, and the ability to uh, overlay data with analytics um, is really now enabling automation. And so we are seeing increasingly, and I know a lot of our roadmap is about how do we take um, the workflows and the processes that our customers are utilizing today, marry that with knowledge that comes from the data that we're able to aggregate, and then you let them use that to automate parts of the recruiting process. Mm -hmm. Whether that's on the sourcing side, whether that's on enabling you know, automated campaigns, automated content delivery, automated job matching, automated um, stages through the recruiting process. Um, that whole concept of automation, I think, is something that is going to become a, a bigger and bigger part of our software uh, and a bigger and bigger part of probably of, uh, of just about every workflow process. Um, I think everybody's still trying to grapple with data privacy. And so when, uh, you know, GDPR was probably a, a good um, impetus for it. Mm -hmm. but I think every company now, particularly when you look at what's happening with Facebook, right, is, is just mindful of the data that's available, who owns the data, and how individuals get transparency and rights over that data. Mm -hmm. And so as companies, I think as um, technology providers, uh, technology providers in a field like recruiting, where that information is hypersensitive, I think that's gonna create some different types of business models for companies um, to, to ensure that uh, data is protected, to ensure that candidates have transparency over the data, and to ensure that candidates have rights over the data that companies have on them. Um, those would be my three or four kind of big themes. Yeah. Well, that data privacy is such a big, <clears throat> has been, excuse me, has been such a big issue um, this year. And I think in, in each of those trends, that's really an important part, right? You talked about uh, uh, evaluating on, on skills. Just to do that generates a lot of data, right? So understanding the gig economy and contingent workforce, like that, that workforce is generating so much data um, just by virtue of, of working remotely and communicating over apps and things like that. And then obviously, you know, trying to automate things based on data. I mean, that, that those privacy issues, and you're right, it's not just Facebook, those privacy issues uh, just ripple throughout, throughout uh, technology companies. And, and I mean, I know we have it with, with our, with our platform, with our clients. I mean, it's just become a very, very important part of how we do business. Definitely. Definitely. With real penalties behind it now, right? So it's right. becoming more and more important for everyone. 
Right. It's sort of it's it, it's reminiscence to me of uh, of boy, is this geeky of uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Right. When that first came out and the and the really stiff penalties for the CEOs and CFOs of companies, if they reported incorrectly, I mean, it's exact same type of thought process going behind data privacy. Yeah, absolutely. And look at what's happening with Facebook. Right. Um, I mean, there are some real implications for the executives there that didn't take maybe a, a strong enough stance on mm-hmm. protecting their user data. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, so I'll talk a little bit about how you manage your business. Everybody's got metrics, you know, that they manage their their business with. So I, I think this is a little bit about ISIMs in general. But what are the three? What are the three main metrics? To how you manage how the executive team and, and you manage the business at ISIMs? What are the kind of three metrics that you're using that you find most valuable? Sure. This is probably universal to most SaaS companies, but um, the three things that we typically look at are client acquisition costs. How much money do you have to spend in order to get that next dollar of revenue Mm -hmm. um, from a customer that isn't using your product today? Um, So client acquisition costs, you know, helps us determine where we spend our dollars in in sales, where we spend our dollars in marketing, what markets we spend our dollars in. Um, because we, you want to be you know, as efficient as you can be mm-hmm. in spending money to get the next dollar of revenue. The other thing that we look at is um, customer lifetime value. Mm-hmm. And customer lifetime value is you know, you, you've spent this money to uh, acquire a customer. Uh, how long does that customer stay with you and, and uh, how quickly does that customer pay you back uh, for the money that you've spent to bring them into your business? And that guides a lot of our thinking around things like um, customer satisfaction and how we build our support functions um, and making sure that we're providing a great experience for our customers because it's much cheaper to retain a customer over a long period of time than it is to sign up a company that leaves on the first renewal and then you have to replace them with another customer. And then the third piece for us is um, net revenue retention. So that's within your installed customer base. Um, how much does that customer base grow net of attrition? Uh, and you, know, you want that to be over 100%, mm-hmm. right? So that your customers grow more than they uh, decline. And um, you know, the higher that number, probably the, the better economics that you get as a SaaS company because it's cheaper to... Um, to sell to an existing customer than it is to go find a new customer. Yeah. And so those three things really probably guide, you know, 70, 80% of our decision-making. And are those three things, the, the, the goals and objectives that you set as an executive team for the business and then, and then bring those down to the individual contributor level, or are the goals you set it out for a year a little bit different than those, than those three metrics? All of the all of the things that we do in the business end up getting reflected in those three metrics. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when we build our budget, it's around well, what do we think uh, customer attrition is going to be, and how do we, you know, make that better because that impacts our uh, customer lifetime value, impacts our net revenue retention. Um, when we look at our you know sales quotas and sales productivity and you know markets that we sell into, right. Um, all of that rolls up into client acquisition cost because if you can be more productive in your sales team, then it reduces uh, the cost of uh, customer acquisition. So 
it's, it's sort of a you know, top-down, bottom-up kind of approach. We have mm-hmm. metrics for what the business is doing today. We look at ways that we can improve those metrics. We'll set some goals, and then those goals get cascaded down to individual, individual uh, metrics that we track and measure. Yeah, got it. So, so how are you specifically measured in your role? Like those are the three, three, you know, big ISIMS goals. How do, how do you get measured? Wow. That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no. So, um, so, I mean, obviously I, I have a big role in contributing to the overall success of the company. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, my metrics are the company metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and how the company is performing and whether or not we're meeting our uh, company-wide goals. Um, a big part of my uh, measurement actually is around, um, I guess my role really distills itself down into how do we deploy um, our cash mm-hmm. uh, and how do we um, achieve returns on the money that we're investing into new products and new markets. And so a lot of my metrics are actually built on um, cash deployment and return on investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we're going to acquire somebody, right, we'll set um, goals for what we think that acquired business uh, can do. Uh, I have responsibility for managing the implementation of that and making sure that we achieve the metrics around that investment thesis. Got it. Great. Okay. Two, two more questions in our, in our interview here, and then I'll, I'll let you get back to it. Um, did you have a mentor in your career? Do you have one today? And can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. So uh, this is one of the things that I advocate for, for, for everyone. So uh, when we do the new hire orientations or when I'm talking to the interns, um, I think finding a mentor can be incredibly impactful to your trajectory of your career. Um, when I made that switch from AT&T to that PE back company, uh, I didn't come in in the role that I sit in now. I came in as a head of um, business development for a, a fairly small company. So the head of business development for a company that probably only had two people in, in business development. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the founder of the company and the president and chief operating officer of the company um, had already been through other companies that they had built. Um, the president and chief operating officer of the company was already in his mid-60s. He really fashioned himself as a teacher. Um, he was at that point in his career that this was his last um, role. Uh, he was he had worked with the the founder and CEO of the company in the previous company, so he was very secure in his role. And when you work in that kind of environment where somebody is secure in their role and doesn't um, view you as a potential threat, um, he just opened up. Um, and so he put me into situations where I had some technical ability because I had learned some of the skill sets of financial modeling and um, product management and things like that at at t but I had no real world experience. Um, and so he was the one that really brought me into the board meetings. He was the one that really brought me into um, discussions about helping to plan the future of the business. He was the one that um, gave me an opportunity to um, participate in acquisitions and then ultimately lead the acquisitions. Um, so uh, you know, I'll, I'll give a plug for Bob Wallach, who was the president and chief operating officer of Infocrossing. He really um, saw something in me and, um, and really brought me into situations that I absolutely had no expertise or experience to be in. Yeah. I heard somebody else talk about that type of, of mentors 
someone who brings you into the zone of incompetence. Uh, and and that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a really amazing thing, right? It's an amazing place to be because it's something that you kind of know how to do, don't really know how to do it, and then they, and then they get you there and they, help, and they help you along the way. Uh, it's a really, really neat concept, but um, absolutely. I love, I, mean, that. Yeah. I, I love that term. I think I'm going to use it. Yeah. That's exactly it, right? Um, yeah. I think for him, it was not only bringing you into the zone of incompetence, but it was also recognizing that you aren't going to succeed, right? Or at least not succeed as fully as you would the next time you do it. So um, somebody that can bring you into those things that are outside of what you know today, but also, you know, uh, has the confidence in themselves, I guess, right. To make sure that they support you when, when you don't succeed a hundred percent. Yeah. That's great. Um, Okay. So last question, what is some advice that you'd give to a person starting their career? Find a mentor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that's important. Um, I I think for me, you probably have to recognize that your career is going to have different sets of responsibilities at different points of your career. So in the early days, it's almost always about how do you get technical competency in something? How do you become the expert at being able to perform a task or perform a function, right? So whether you're in accounting or law or sales, right, you have to demonstrate um, a lot of proficiency around that specific thing. Um, as you move up, it becomes less and less about your proficiency in performing the task and more and more about your ability to motivate and lead and inspire other people. And so um, I tell people, you know, spend those first five years just becoming an expert because you're going to need to rely on that for the rest of your career. Um, And people need to view you as somebody that's credible and understands the the issues that they're trying to face. But what you really should be doing is is building those soft skills, making sure that you understand how to um, how to build uh, a plan. Right. Um, Making sure that you understand um, how to communicate because communication at the end of the day is probably one of the most fundamental things that enables people to succeed. Um, making sure that you know how to manage your time. I mean, those are the things that you need to be able to, to do uh, to transition from individual contributor to, to manager. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that sort of becomes that next step is that people need to trust in your decision-making. And so for me, you know, I always tell folks that are part of my group that, in order to go from a manager to a director or a director to a VP, it's, it's really my level of confidence in your decision-making ability, um, not necessarily my level of confidence in your proficiency performing the task. Um, in order for me to, to, to move you up, I need to get more and more comfortable that I trust your ability to understand the issues and make a decision. Um, mm-hmm. You don't need to make the right decision, but I need to understand that you actually understand what you need to know in order to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's, you know, I think as people are thinking about a, a, you know, a 30 year career, they should think about it in, you know, five to 10 year kind of increments and the things that they need to gather in each of those time periods. Well, that's really great. I, uh, I have not had someone say that to me in, in those five year increments. It's, It's funny as I look back on on my career, I, I very easily see, you know, chunks like that where, where I was actively learning and, and, and actively involved and how do I improve myself in this one way or this. Way. So that's really, that's really a neat way to, neat way to put it. Thank you. Sure. 
and thanks for taking the time. I know that you, uh, you've got other things to do that include, um, Thanksgiving dessert. So I want to make sure you can get to get back to that, uh, at the, uh, at the Isom's potluck there. So thanks again for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for the invitation. It, it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Talent Playbook Podcast with our guest, Mike Wilczek, Senior VP of Corporate Development at iSIMS. If you'd like to learn more about iSIMS and Mike, start at the iSIMS website, iSIMS.com. Then head on over to LinkedIn and search up Mike. It should be Michael Wilczek, W-I-L-C-Z-A-K. And you can get up-to-the-minute information on iSIMS by heading to Twitter, at iSIMS. You can subscribe to the Talent Playbook podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and the Outmatch website. I'd like to thank Mike for his time today. I'd also like to thank Alan Tockerman, Greg Moran, Michelle Stellato, and Carly Pett for pitching the idea to Mike and making all the scheduling arrangements. Also, thanks to Charles Summers and Chris Gardner at Outmatch for the technical assistance. And our theme music is composed by Chris Gardner. Until next time, this is Jason Ferrara say thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.